Um, so there we go. Okay. So let's go ahead and get going. I'm going to pray for us as we start here. It's always good to ask the Lord for his help and, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Uh, Father, thanks for giving us the evening to be together. Thank you for um, each person here who's taken time out of their, their evening um, to look at theology and um, who you are and what you've done. And so we pray that this would be a meaningful and beneficial time for us all. And I just pray for your help. Uh, we're we're going to talk through things that, that we confess we're, we're not really uh, qualified to talk about. So we just need your help, Lord, um, through your spirit to speak to us and teach us what we need to hear. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So let's start. I, I wanted to just tell you, um, I've got some book resources here for you to to peruse if you're interested in in doing a deeper dive into this. Um, I'm, I'm going to try to be as uh, thorough as I can without being overwhelming. And obviously, just there's a time frame that we just can't do as deep of a dive as, as others have been able to do in book form. So I've got a few options here that they kind of laid out from uh, be- very beginning, like if you've never studied theology at all, uh, there's a book that just came out um, a couple months ago called Do You Believe by Paul Tripp. Uh, great, great book. Um, not super long, not super complicated, but just really gives you a good sense of the main doctrines of the Christian faith and why they matter. So that's, that's kind of cool. Um, and then you've got these really scary thick books here that are... Um, they literally say an introduction to Christian belief, and that's ridiculous because that's 1,200 pages of introduction, but it's probably true. Um, but those are both called Systematic Theology. One's written by John, uh, Wayne Grudem and the other by John Frame. Um, Wayne Grudem is probably the most standard systematic theology text for evangelical Christians uh, in our day, and it's very readable, believe it or not, even though it's 1,200 pages, it's, it is a readable book. John Frame, I studied under in seminary, and he is a brilliant, brilliant mind, um, and it's not for the faint of heart. So, you know, it is what it is. If you guys feel like you want to tackle John Frame, that's great. Uh, his is also an introduction to Christian belief, and that's crazy. But then the, then the last two here, these two that are stacked on top of each other, that is uh, Calvin's Institutes. Uh, you don't have to be a Calvinist to like John Calvin. Um, John Calvin wrote the Institutes back in the 1500s. It is probably the magnum opus of, of Protestant theology that's ever been written. So whether you agree with him on every point or not is not really the issue. But that's going to be uh, your advanced textbook. So just kind of think about that. If you're interested, you can get any of these on Amazon. But I just thought I'd throw them out there um, in case you want to do a deeper dive. But in the meantime, let's go through. I've got some PowerPoint. This is not my normal, you know, in a normal sermon, I don't use PowerPoint because I find it distracting. But uh, this, for this kind of a setting, it can be helpful. Um, so let's ask some questions first. Just why, why do this? Why come into this? Why study theology? Um, the, the simple answer is that we do this because this is how we can know God. And um, we want to know God. Now, you don't have to do a deep dive in theology to know God. Uh, you need to read your Bible to know him. But uh, the Bible teaches doctrines. And so the, the deeper we learn 
uh, about him, the more we can love him, which is true when you think about it in a human relationship. You, you can't love someone as well as you need to if you don't know them, right? And so we want to know who God is. We want to grow in our knowledge of God. And that is what uh, theology means. Theology is a word that comes from two Greek words smushed together. Uh, Theos, which is the Greek word for God, and logos, which is the Greek word for knowledge or word about or study of. So biology comes from bios, Greek word for life, and and logos, which is knowledge, right? So it's the study of life. That's what biology is. Theology is the study of God. It's, it's how, do, how do we get to know him? How do we grow in him? And so we, we want to study theology because this is how we can know God more deeply and more beautifully. And we have to make sure that all of our theology is actually true in Scripture, uh, which we'll get to in, in a couple of weeks here. We'll talk about the doctrine of Scripture and why we go there for our primary authority. But I'm working off of that assumption now, just so you know. I'm working off the assumption that, even though I haven't had the time to prove it yet, um, the Bible is our source of authority, and that's how we know what God wants us to know. So we're going to work off of that. Um, but, but even more f- foundationally, s- studying theology is, like I'm going to use Nathan's example. Uh, he shared this with me on Sunday. It's like building a house. And you start with the foundation, and then you work up, upward from there. Right? You build the, the walls and the roof, and then inside you set up the rooms, and then you decide where things go, right? And that, that's kind of how the study of theology works. It's, here's a picture for you. This is a series of concentric circles. Um, you got in the center there, you've got absolutes. And these are the things that all Christians everywhere, regardless of denomination, regardless of anything, if you are a Christian, that's, those are the things that, that we have to believe. We believe that God is a trinity. We believe that the Bible is his word. We believe that Christ is God and man. We, we believe that he's the only way to salvation. We, there, there are core fundamental doctrines that are absolute to be a Christian. And that's the foundation, right? That's, that's where we have to all come together and agree regardless of our, our other things. And so you see the second concentric circle here is convictions. Uh, convictions are important, but they're not absolutes, right? So convictions would be the things that we hold to that are really important. They're not, con- they're not inconsequential. They're very consequential. And that's where you have differences of uh, really denominational differences come down to convictions, we can still be brothers and sisters in Christ on the absolutes, but, but we may not all agree on things that are really important, but, but they're not going to change your salvation or, or that status. So convictions are going to be uh, important things, very important things even, but not absolute things. The third circle is opinions. And of course, this is even less important, right? These are the things that really churches should not split over opinions. We shouldn't divide over opinions. We should have opinions for what they are, your opinion. And I can have an opinion, and you can have an opinion. And so convictions are kind of like, where do you, where do, how do you lay out the house? Like, what's the floor plan? Important issue, should be some agreement on that. 
opinions are probably more like, well, where do we put the windows or where do we put the doors or where, where do we put the kitchen sink in relation to this room? Th- those are things that, you know, again, we can have dif- differences on, but we're not going to like have a huge fight over them, hopefully. And then the last ring here is questions. Um, questions are those things that we definitely don't divide over because those are things like, well, should I put this picture frame here or there? Like, it really doesn't matter. Just put it wherever you want. At least that's my view in my house. So um, we don't fight over those things. Like, th- those are just like, hey, we've, we've all got some questions here. And so those are kind of the four rungs of theology. And I'm going to try my best, although I'm a person and I have p- opinions and views and convictions and all that. I'm going to try my best to keep it to absolutes and convictions and if there's an opinion or a question, I'll, I'll be, try to be honest and say that that's where I'm at. And so, um, but I am a human, so I may not always show my cards as well as I should, but I'm going to do my best to try to keep this class uh, to these first two rungs in this circle. Um, it's things that we can pretty much all agree on uh, or should agree on and, and why that's important. So, so that's where that's at. Um, this class is also different than a sermon. I'm going to give us some time to ask questions. You don't have to feel obligated to ask questions, but I want to give you the opportunity to do that, especially if you know, we talk about something that may be like, wow, I do not understand that, or wait a minute, that seems very different from how I was taught, whatever it might be. Um, I'm going to try to, oh, I am going to offer opportunities at the end of each section to stop and ask questions. If a question comes up in the middle of what I'm saying, you can feel free to interrupt me. I may ignore you, but probably not, okay? Uh, but, but I really do mean it. Like, this is not a sermon. I know most of the time when you hear me talk, it's a sermon, and that's a, that's a different kind of setting. Uh, it's not as free to just pop up and say, what about this? Now, you're always welcome to do that after church and talk with me. I'm always open for that. But obviously, the Sunday morning service is a little different than this. So feel free uh, to ask questions, um, and, and I, don't, I doubt you have any right now. But if you do, feel free to ask. We'll stop for a second. You got a question, Nathan? Back there? No? Okay, great. All right. Well, obviously I didn't touch on too much there. So, so we're going to talk about some stuff tonight, and this may be where questions start to form. Um, we're only going to talk about a very tiny subject, which is the existence of God. Okay. <laughs> Uh, it's only the most consequential issue in the entire universe. So, yeah, half an hour should be just fine, right? Like, no, obviously not. Um, we're only going to scratch the surface of these things. But I do want to, I want to start really at the, at the bottom. Um, a lot of systematic theologies, like, like Wayne Grudem's, for example, I don't think John Frame starts his this way, but Wayne Grudem starts his book with the Bible. That's the first chapter section of chapters um and his reasoning for that makes sense because our theology is built out of scripture and so his his theory is well we start with let's let's define scripture because that's how we can know god and so then we can build from there into why we believe god exists and all those things that's a perfectly fine way to to break things down but i i've just i'm more compelled by let's start with god himself and go out from there. Okay, so, so today, today we're going to talk about the existence 
and nature of God. So those are the two subjects we're talking about. We'll, we'll do the existence. Well, actually three things. The existence, the knowability, and the, and the um, uh, nature of God are really the things we're going to deal with tonight. So let's start with the obvious question. How do we know that God exists? How do we know God exists? This is, again, like the most fundamental question of humanity. It's what we've all been asking forever. It's like, can we know that there's a God? And if we can, how do we know that? There's really three answers to that, or three different ways we can know God exists. The first is our inner sense of God. So the inner sense of God is basically another way of saying that every human being knows intuitively that there is something beyond them. We are wired, we're hardwired as human beings to just know that there's a God. It's, It's a really interesting thing. It's almost like we're made by someone and he wants us to know him, right? We know internally there is something beyond us. Um, and, and the Bible t- talks about this. The Bible says in Romans 1.19, for what can be known about God is plain to them, clear to them, them being the human race in the context, because God has shown it to them. So what can be known about God is plain to them, it's clear why, because God has shown it to them. And, and Paul will go on in the next verse or two, which we'll look at in a few minutes, um, why that is even further the case. But, but I think every single person intuitively knows that there's a God. In fact, we know that because the, the most staunch atheists will say intellectually they don't believe in God, but they're mad about it. Right? They're mad that he doesn't exist. It's almost like they know they're wrong, but they just can't get themselves intellectually to, to agree. And uh, John Calvin talks about this in his Institutes. I'll probably be quoting Calvin a, a bit throughout this, but here's what he mentions on this issue. He says, therefore, since the beginning of the world, there has been no region, no city, in short, no household that could do without religion. There lies in this a a tacit confession of a sense of deity inscribed on the hearts of all. So that's from book one of chapter three of his institutes. And uh, basically what he's saying there is simple, right? That for all time, and this is still, still true today, 500 years after Calvin wrote this, there is no tribe, there's no place out in the, middle of nowhere that hasn't had any human contact outside of themselves that we have found yet that is by definition an atheistic tribe. They all have a sense of deity. Now that doesn't mean that they're Christians. That's a different issue. That's not what Calvin is saying. When he says that there is no religion or that they're without religion, um, they're not without religion, excuse me. He's, He's not saying here that they believe in the true faith, right? That's not his point. His point is that they have an internal sense of a deity, no matter how far away from civilization they are. And in fact, he says, uh, if you continue to read what he says in that, in that chapter, he goes on to say that if, 
if uh, the further out you get from civilization, the more true this is. And he says you would think that the further away people are from civilized people, the, the more godless they would be. But it's the opposite of that oftentimes, most of the time. Uh, there's a sense of deity, even if, even if it's a misunderstanding of deity. So, so we have that. There seems to be, in human history, a clear inner sense of God. And the Bible says in uh, Psalm 14:1 that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, that's not to say that he's not talking about somebody's intellectual ability. That's not what a fool is. A fool is a person who, who does not believe in something even though it's right in front of his face. And so it's not an issue of intelligence because some of the most intelligent people are atheists. And, and that's, we're not, I'm not saying that they're not very intelligent. They could run circles around me in, in an intellectual argument. Absolutely they could. But the fool is someone who says in his heart there is no God because it's so obvious that a God exists. It's, it's right in front of your face. You should be able to see it because there's an inner sense of who God is. So that's the first reason. Here's the second one. Uh, nature. Nature, the created world, is the second reason we can know that there's a God. Uh, there's a couple verses here. Psalm 19, 1 and 2 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens. The heavens is not the place you go when you die. The heavens is the sky, right? The, the night sky filled with stars when you're outside of the city and you can just see the beauty of, of the world and the universe. That declares the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. It says day to day, day, to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. So what is he saying there? He's saying, well, day after day, we're seeing more of God. Night after night, we're re- he's revealing more of himself. The created world tells us that there's a God. Paul goes on to say that in the next verse, uh, verse 20 of Romans 1. He says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, clearly seen ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, they being human beings. So here what Paul says, that the creation of the world in the things that have been made have made God clearly perceived. You can look at the world and, and know that there's a God. And, and I've used this example in sermons many times over the years, but nobody goes to the Grand Canyon and walks away and goes, wow, I'm awesome. Right? It's just not what you do. Because there's something in, in, in inherent in nature, in the grandness of uh, the world, that makes us realize I'm not that important, I'm not that big, I'm not that spectacular. There's something else out there. There's something else. And, and I think we, we, we can see that. We can see that when we stare at the sky at night and go, wow, I'm really small. I'm really small. And, and we can go to the Grand Canyon or to the Rocky Mountains or to anything that just eclipses us in size and go, <laughs> all right. That, that, there's, a, there's an internal issue there. Uh, third thing 
that, um, oh, sorry, before I move past that, I wanted to share this little book um, in case you're interested in nature and the case for God. There's a book called Nature's Case for God um, by John Frame. So same guy who wrote that mammoth book, wrote this tiny book too. Uh, this is only 80 pages. Uh, really good little biblical treatment on how nature um, makes a case for God. So if you're interested in digging in, there's a specific book on that subject. But, but the third way we can know that God exists is by the word of God, which we're not, we're not going to dig into real deeply today because uh, we'll have a whole session on the word of God in a couple of weeks. But let's just say this, the, the Bible makes it very clear that God exists, right? I mean, and ultimately that's how we can know God and who, who God really is. Um, we can know him in his truth and fullness by the word. We can't get all the way to saving faith without the Bible. Um, that's, there, that's what theologians refer to as there is natural revelation and then there is special revelation, or sometimes it's called general revelation and special revelation, but you have, you have some things revealed about God through nature and through your inner sense of his existence, but we need a special revelation from God to get us all the way to Jesus. Um, there, there is just, there, there's just the reality of that, and that's why missions matters so that we can go and proclaim the gospel to people who have never heard of Jesus. Uh, we need to be about proclaiming the Bible and learning the Bible. The Bible is the ultimate source of how we know God exists. Okay, And so we're going to spend a lot of time on this in, in coming weeks, but, but I just wanted to make mention of that. That is the, the primary way we know there's a God, is that God has shown us himself in the scriptures. Okay, so, so those are the three main ways. Um, and again, you know, we can, we're going to talk about how all this ties together in just a second. But I wanted to spend just a few minutes um, talking about this. I'm really not going to spend a lot of time on this. But there are arguments for God's existence from philosophy. And I, I'll just tell you, I do not like philosophy. I don't understand philosophy. It's too complicated for me. I just don't get it. And if it's, in, if it's your thing, that's great. I, I'm so glad for you. But I don't like philosophy, but I thought it would be important for me to at least mention to you that historically, philosophical questions have been asked about God's existence, and we have some answers that they've tried to come up with. Uh, one is the cosmological argument. Uh, again, I'm flying through this, okay? And this is not super critical, so if, you're, if your hand hurts from notes, you can save yourself a few minutes. Don't bother writing this down. Um, but basically, the cosmological argument is that every known thing in the universe has a cause. It has to start from something. Therefore, it reasons that the universe itself has a cause, and the cause of such a massive universe can only be God. Okay, cool, great. Um, teleological argument. This is, these are categories of philosoph philosophical arguments. Uh, this focuses on the harmony, order, and design of the universe. Uh, it argues that its design gives evidence of an intelligent purpose. The word uh, telos, which is where they get teleological, uh, means end or goal or purpose. Okay, so, so they would say, look at how everything is ordered. Look at how everything has design. 
there must be a designer. Makes sense. Um, fourth major argument in philosophy is ontological arguments. Um, this basically means that this kind of starts with the assumption that God already exists, and he's defined as something greater than can, than can be imagined, right? So we can't think of anything bigger than God or greater than God. So um, he has to exist. This one really hurts my head. He has to exist since it's greater to exist than not exist. Okay, fine. I, I mean, honestly, like this is, some of these things are just like, ouch, my head hurts. Last one, this one's easy. Uh, moral argument basically says we all understand there's right and wrong and we need justice. And so because that's in, there's, a, there's a moral sense of right and wrong in us, there must be a God who determines what right and wrong is and that he brings justice someday. So anyways, those are the main uh, philosophical arguments. I just thought I'd share them with you in case you're interested in any of that. But these arguments can only take us so far. Uh, I really do think that there's a place for apologetics. I do think that there's a place for philosophy uh, among some people. But I don't know anybody who will, who will say, I came to faith in Christ because someone made the teleological argument and I'm just so convinced by it. Uh, you know, C.S. Lewis was a philosopher. He came to faith in Christ later uh, in his life out of atheism. He didn't come to Christ because he had some grand philosophical argument. N no one does, really. Fundamentally, at the end of the day, uh, only God can overcome our sin and make us believe that he exists. That's it. Uh, the existence of God, we know it's innate in us. We know that it's seen in nature. We know that the scriptures testify to it. We know there's plenty of good logical, philosophical reasons to believe in God. But at the end of the day, if our sin is still overcoming in our hearts, we're not going to get there until God overcomes it and shows us that he's here and he's real. And so... Um, this is, the, again, just the quick overview for the arguments for the existence of God. Do you guys have any questions? Let me pause. And anything that you guys want to ask, clarify, get clarification on? Anything that's confusing? I mean, maybe I'm all confusing, but that's... No? Comments. Yes, comments. You're great, too. Great! Yeah. That, that's wonderful. And there's, there's a place for all of that, for sure. And it's just not where I'm at. But yeah, that's great. Do you have any, have you had any like good book, book options for people on philosophy that you've read or nothing off the top of your head? Okay, cool. Well, if you come up, if you come across anything, I'm always looking for resources. So that's great. Okay. Um, well, let's go on to the next topic then. Uh, we haven't even started with the hard stuff yet, so we're, <laughs> we're getting there. <clears throat> let's talk about the knowability of God. So we talked about the existence of God. And we're going to assume, because you're in a church and I'm a Christian, and you're probably a Christian too, I, although I don't know where everyone's at, but you probably believe that God exists um, as well, I'm going to guess. And if you don't, that's totally fine. You're welcome to be here and 
we can engage later for sure. But let's assume that God exists, right? Let's work off of that and because it's true and we're going to go with it. The question is, is, okay, that's great, but how can we know him? How can we know him? And there, there is a sense in which there's people who can intellectually move from atheism to theism. Theism would be the belief that there's a, a God, but theism is not Christianity, right? And so it, it's one thing to believe in, a, in the existence of a God. It's another thing to actually know the God that, you, that we believe in and the God who actually exists. So how can we know him? So here's the, the short answer. Um, if we're going to know God at all, it is necessary that he reveal himself to us. So that makes sense, right? Because we are sinners. Uh, even if you don't believe in the doctrine of sin, uh, which I don't know too many people who don't believe in the doctrine of sin on some level, uh, because we can see bad things around us all the time. Um, we all know there's something wrong, but e- even if you don't believe in that, we still have the problem of going, okay, well, how can a finite mind understand an infinite being? Right? There, there, that's a struggle. That's something we've got to reckon with. And the answer to that in Christian theology is that God tells us who he is. So he, he overcomes that, that lack uh, in us. And, um, and, and so we're seeing this necessity for God to reveal himself to us. If, if you go, um, it's actually on the screen, Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27. Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by the Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So now there's a lot of questions in this that we haven't even gotten to yet. Like, why is there a Father and a Son? What is this? Uh, we're going to touch on that tonight. Okay, we're going to get into this. But the key that I want us to hone in on is this last line that... that those who know him, know the Father, know the Son, are those that the Son chooses to reveal him. So, so Jesus has to be engaged in showing us who God is for us to know him. And, and then he goes even further in on this in John 14, where he basically says, if we're going to know God at all, We have to know him through Jesus Christ. John 14. This is what makes Christianity distinct from every other theistic belief. Is that we believe in Christ. Christianity is centered on Jesus. And the reason for that is because Jesus tells us that that's how it has to be. He says in uh, 14, John 14, 1 to 11... I'll read it because it's just too much to put on the screen here. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. So God exists. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. 
If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself and where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then he says this, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Again, there's a lot of stuff there that needs to be unpacked, but but look at verse 8. Philip then said to, to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said, Have I been with you so long that you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Okay, so again, tons there we could unpack, but um, Jesus is making the clear point that if you're going to know God, you have to know him through Jesus. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the only way that we can get to the Father. And his disciples were clearly confused by these things, right? And maybe we are too, to some degree. But, but it is uh, super helpful uh, to, to just see this reality in Christian theology, that if we're going to know God, we have to know him through Jesus, Here's another thing we need to recognize. Um, we can never fully understand God. We, we can't. Uh, like I said, we have finite minds, and he's infinite. So the finite cannot fully, fully is the key word there. That's why it's underlined. We cannot fully understand God. There's a couple of verses here. I'll read um, one, uh, Psalm 139. Verse 6 says, uh, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Now, in this, in this psalm, he's talking about how God created him and formed him and who God is and, and all these issues. And so he just kind of stops and goes, I can't wrap my head around this. This is too much for me. 145, just a few psalms later, and it says in verse 3, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. His greatness is unsearchable. Meaning we can't fully figure it out. We can't find out every aspect of his greatness. It's too too great. Uh, Romans 11, one more here. Uh, we read this every once a month or so for our benediction after the service. Romans 11, 33 to 36. So if you're a Springbrooker, you'll probably be familiar. At least you'll have heard these verses. It says, Oh, the depth of the riches 
and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. So his, so his judgments and ways are unsearchable, they're inscrutable, they're not fully understandable. And then he says, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he, the person who gives a gift, might be repaid? The answer to that is, well, uh, no one. No one has fully known the mind of the Lord. No one has been able to be God's counselor right cuz he's the counselor that we need we're not it doesn't work the other way around he knows far more than we do and we've never given him anything that we can be paid back for and the reason for that is verse 36 for from him and through him and to him are all things so we can't give him the gifts that he deserves because he's the one who gives us everything to him be glory forever amen so so again we we can't fully understand god we as we, as we embark on this study of theology, that might sound discouraging. Um, but I, I want to encourage you with this. Even though we cannot know God exhaustively, we can know him truly. This is, where, this is where theology and the study of doctrine should encourage us. We may not be able to fully wrap our heads around every aspect of, of who God is, and that's okay. We need to know our limitations. But what we can know about God, we can know is true. And the scriptures tell us about God and what, it, what the scriptures tell us is true. It is true. And so we don't need to be discouraged in this. Uh, we should actually be encouraged knowing that God has actually given us something of himself, even if it's not full knowledge of himself because frankly we just would never be able to get there anyways he has given us truly what we need to know about him jeremiah 9 23 and 24 says thus says the lord let not the wise man boast in his wisdom let night let not the mighty man boast in his might let not the rich man boast in his riches but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. For I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So what, what can we know about God? Well, we can't know everything. But we can know that he is a God who practices steadfast love. That's good to know because he loves us in a steadfast way, a way that doesn't change. We know that he is a God who, lo who practices justice. That's good to know because that means all the wrongs that have been done in our world and to us and all the wrongs that we've done to the Lord and to others can be made right either through the blood of Christ covering our sins and the sins of others or, or through God bringing justice one day. He's a God who practices righteousness, right? So he's right in all that he does. So, so there are things we can know and we can boast in that we know him truly, not, exclude, not exhaustively, but we can know him truly. In 1 John 2.13, I'll finish with uh, 
this before we move on to the questions in the next section, but um, 1 John 2, 13 says, um, he says, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And I write to you, children, because you know the Father. Right, so in two of those three people, he addresses the fathers, spiritual fathers, young men, and children. The fathers he's writing to because they know him. And children he's writing to because they know him. Right, so we can, we can know him. We can. We can truly know him. It doesn't mean we can know everything about him. It doesn't mean we won't have questions. It doesn't mean we won't have doubts or fears or, or, or anything of that sort. That, that's all. We're capable of that. But what we can know is true because the scriptures are what God has given us to know him. And again, we'll, we'll talk, touch more on that in a couple of weeks more deeply on the scripture issue. But uh, All right, so... Anything on the knowability of God you guys want to talk about? Um, there's a lot. I mean, I know we're just kind of drinking from a fire hose, hose here, so, um, and we're going to get to the next complicated thing next. But I want to stop and let you ask questions. No. E- so either I'm I'm making way more clarity than I think, or something. That's okay. That's all right. Here we go. This is the one that's going to really, going to ask some questions, probably. All right. Let's talk about the nature of God. So, by the nature of God, I don't mean nature as in the created world. The word nature here is referring to the essence of who God is. Who who is God, foundationally at His core? Okay. the The Christian answer to this is that God exists as one God in three persons, what Christians refer to as the Trinity. All right, so this is going to be, this is going to be great because we're just going to talk through the Trinity and it'll be as clear as mud and then we're going to go home. Okay, so uh, this, is, this is tough. This is the, the reality, but the Bible has taught us clearly that God is one in three um, and, and we're going to unpack what that means. Okay, so the word Trinity uh, is not found in your Bible. You'll never find the word Trinity in the Bible. It's not a word that the Bible uses specifically about God. But it is a word that we use to explain the teaching of the Bible. That we explain uh, this tri-unity of God. So, so in... So that's where the word Trinity comes from. It's kind of this combination of tri, meaning three, and unity, meaning oneness. So this three oneness. Let's, let's unpack how the scriptures teach us about this. There is one God. The Bible teaches us clearly there is one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So this is what is called the Shema in Hebrew. It's kind of the the traditional call to worship for the Jewish people of the Old Testament. And their call, their rallying cry around the Lord is, uh, 
The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. There is oneness. This is Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. We know that there is one God. Isaiah 45, 5 says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. So what the Bible flat out rejects is the concept of polytheism. Okay, polytheism is the belief that there are many gods. That's not Christian theology. That is, that is pagan theology. That is false religion. Uh, there, are, there are religions in, modern, in our modern day that do believe in polytheism. Hinduism would be one of those. Um, so Hinduism has thousands, maybe millions. I don't think that they've even capped a number yet on how many gods there are. That's not the biblical truth of God. God is one. The I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. What set Israel apart in their culture at their time was that they were truly the only monotheistic religion uh, in the whole region of, of Cana and um, that, that area that they lived. Egypt, all Babylon, uh, all of these major nations, Assyria, uh, the Persians, they were all polytheistic nations. They didn't have just one God. They had a God for this, a God for that. And Israel slipped into the, the practice of worshiping false gods all throughout their history. Um, they, when Moses went up to the mountain after they get freed from Egypt, He's gone for a while, so then they decide he must be dead, so let's create this, this God in our own image, and they make this golden cow. And they're like, okay, that's God now. Uh, they were just doing what they, what they knew, which was wrong, and Moses corrected them when he came back. But um, as they got through, you know, through the wilderness journey, there wasn't a ton of idolatry happening then. But once they got settled in the land... Um, there was a lot of temptation to worship the other gods of the nations around them. And they began to. And Solomon um, was the king who kind of issued, brought this in upon them. Uh, you know, so David's king, David dies, Solomon becomes king. Solomon has a long reign of peace um, and security. There really were no wars at, at that time. But Solomon's great mistake was that he brought in, I think it said he had a thousand wives. I'm trying to remember this. It's ridiculous. 300, yeah, 700 wives, 300 concubines. So a thousand women in his, in his house. And most of them were from foreign countries and most of them had false gods. So, so then he brings false worship in. He sets up these places of worship for his wives and concubines. And it just starts to all go downhill. Then Rehoboam, his son becomes king and immediately destroys everything and just like ruins it all. And the kingdom gets split in two and it just becomes a massive mess. And then eventually the exiles start to happen. So God takes very seriously in the Old Testament that they, they have to be committed to him exclusively. He, he set them into exile, out of their land, at least in part because of their idolatry. Um, and, and so we, 
we see that actually in the period before the kings too. They, during the judges, there was a lot of idolatry as well. So there's a lot of problems with this. But anyways, what's clear in the scripture is that there is one God. All right, so there's a few major religions today that would affirm this. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are all monotheistic religions. They all find their their roots somewhere in the the Christian story, um, Old Testament primarily for the for the, the the other two that aren't Christian faiths. Um, but but they would all kind of go after the, this idea that there's one God. Where Christianity differs is that the Bible affirms, we would believe the Bible teaches, the existence of God in three persons. Even though the word Trinity is never used. The the Bible affirms that there is one God, but that God exists in three persons. Let me, let me give you a few examples of this, uh, of where we see this in the New Testament. And it's all over. It's actually in the, uh, I'll actually actually start uh, in Genesis, because I do think that there is, there are hints of it in the Old Testament, though it's not clearly expressed in the Old Testament. There are hints of it. Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 2. Uh, says the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Okay, so fine. God's a spirit there, fine. Okay, let's, let's go over to, I think it's chapter, uh, where is it here? Chapter 2, right? Hang on, I'm looking for it. I don't, I'm going off book here for a second. No, I think it's still chapter 1. Yes, verse 26. Then God said, so he's created all these things. He's on to the, um, I think he's on to the sixth day here. God said, "Let let us make man in our image. After our likeness. And let them, meaning humanity, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth. Okay. Um, God says, let us make man in our image. I mean, that's, that's odd. I mean, you know, if you don't have a Trinitarian theology... It's a little hard to wrap our heads around what's happening there. And some of the answers that others have given to this is, well, he's talking about, he's talking to the angels. It doesn't, the text isn't anywhere clear on that. Um, In fact, the mention of the created, doesn't even say that God created the angels yet. I mean, we're not sure exactly where in the, in the period he created them, but it doesn't seem likely if you just read the Bible there that God is speaking to the angels as if they're involved in the creation. It just doesn't seem to make sense, right? God's, God's been doing all of this on his own, speaking, and things are coming into existence. And then suddenly he says, okay, let us make man in our image. 
Uh, so there's something. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to say we can build an entire theology of the Trinity on that one verse, because I don't think that it's uh, overt there. It's something to be considered, and it's something to think, okay, the Old Testament just does point here. But the New Testament is where we start to see it more clearly, much more clearly, in fact, explicitly. So if you go to Matthew chapter 3, this is my um, favorite passage to, to talk about the Trinity. Matthew three sixteen through 17. So Jesus is baptized, okay? He's starting his earthly ministry. And it says, when, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So, so right here, what we're seeing is the triune God, this triunity of God, simultaneously working. You got Jesus in the water. The heavens open up. The, the dove, which we're told explicitly in the scriptures, is the spirit of God comes down. And the father from heaven speaks that this is my beloved son. You, you have, the, this is probably the clearest picture of God existing simultaneously all as one in three persons. And, and really from here, you see the, the, that Christian theology basically acknowledges all three of these persons as equals, as fully God, all throughout. Uh, Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus is giving his disciples the, la- the Great Commission, and he tells them to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's not the names, plural. It's the name, singular. There's unity, but the three persons are there, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is, this is how the reality of God's existence has progressively been shown to us over time. God did not just plop down everything about himself in a single day, in a single volume. It took hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years for him to reveal all of these things to his people because he was waiting for the culmination of Jesus Christ to be the greatest revelation of of himself. Um, And and that's going to be a whole other issue that we'll talk about in more depth on why Jesus is the great and final word of God. We'll talk about that when we talk about the Bible. But, but let me give you one more example from um, the, the New Testament on the Trinity before we move on to uh, trying to explain this a little more. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, last verse of 2 Corinthians. Paul says, as he closes out this letter, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So if this was just, okay, either three separate gods, um, Jesus would not say, 
baptized in the name, singular, of these three separate gods. And if these three, uh, if these three persons were uh, just like separate or, or, or like entities that existed di- at different times throughout history, like the fathers in the Old Testament, Jesus is there when he's on earth and the Holy Spirit is there when, he's, when Jesus goes back into heaven, then why would, then why would Paul and why would the, the New Testament writers consistently talk about all three persons like he does here. The grace of Jesus, the love of God, the fellowship of the Spirit, all of these persons are involved in the blessing of this church as he closes out this letter. So those, those are just a few examples. And we, I mean, we could spend hours and hours talking about this, but, but let's just talk through the, the, the main point here of the Trinity, the biblical summary of the Trinity. These three statements have to be believed, and, and I'm going to walk through different problems throughout history where these, one of these would be denied or, or two of them would be denied. Uh, but here are the three statements that biblically we have to believe. God is three persons. Each person is fully God, and there is one God. Now, again, how does that work? Like, that math doesn't seem to be working here for us, right? I, I, I get it. It's like it's a hard thing to wrap our heads around because one does not equal three. Uh, one plus one plus one doesn't equal one. I mean, it's like, you know, all these things are, they're just confusing. But these are the realities of the, of the biblical teaching on this issue is that God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each of these persons is fully God, and there is one God. So if you're a picture person, here's, here's a picture. Um, this is the best picture I, can, I could find because uh, it's just hard to diagram this, right? But this is, so this is probably not perfect, but it gets, it gets pretty close. Okay, so you got, the, you got God, right? And he's connected to this triangle, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But here's what's clear. You have that one God in three persons. So the Son is God, but the Son is not the Father and the Son is not the Holy Spirit. Likewise, the Father is not the Son and the Father is not the Holy Spirit, but the Father is God. Holy Spirit is God, but he's not the Son and he's not the Father. Clear as mud? You guys, you guys get that? That's the best we can do, okay? Um, but, <clears throat> but we're working on it. So that's really, that is the biblical understanding of this. And, and, and we're going to walk through, and I, I want to make it clear that we will make this more on the nose as we get to Christ, this, the, the session on Christ. We're going to spend significant time talking about how we know Jesus is God, Okay. When we get to the Holy Spirit session, we're going to talk about how we know the Holy Spirit is God. So I'm, I'm doing a very broad stroke thing here tonight because otherwise we'd be here for three or four hours just trying to unpack how, is, how do we know Jesus is God? How do we know the Holy Spirit is God? I don't think the Father is really questioned too much because that's the monotheism thing we understand. There's one God. We can get that. It's how do these other persons fit into that Godhead uh, as the old word for it would be. So... So we will get there, and I just want to recognize that I'm just barely scratching the surface tonight 
because I will spend significant time in the Christology and the Holy Spirit sessions talking about how we know those persons are God. Um, but I wanted to spend some time tonight talking about something fun, okay? Uh, the, the errors in denying one of these three statements. There are actually heretics that have historically been around that have uh, taught falsely on this. And I think it's fun to kind of talk about the heretics sometimes. So um, here's one of the errors that would would happen uh, if we denied one of those three statements. So the three statements are there's three persons in God. All persons are fully God. There is one God. Modalism is a theology that teaches that there is one person of God, there's one God, who appears in three different forms or modes. So this would deny that first, that first point, that God is three persons. Now, what's the problem with modalism? So modalism would teach that, like I kind of mentioned it already, this idea that in one stage of human history, God exists as, exists as or appears to be the father. And then in another period of history, he appears as the son, Jesus. And now today in our day in history, he appears as the Holy Spirit. There's just one God and he's just showing up in different modes or different forms. Well, the problem with that is uh, Matthew chapter 3. Verse 16, because we see all three persons engaged and active in that text. I don't know how a modalist could explain how the Father could be speaking from heaven and the Spirit descending on Christ and Christ in the water all at the same time without denying that the Scripture is wrong. You'd have to say that. You'd have to go, well, it's just figurative language or it's just flowery talk or you'd have to go there. You'd have to basically undermine the clear explanation of scripture that God is one God in three persons. Okay. And all three are fully God. So that's modalism. The second uh, error that we see throughout church history is called Arianism. Arianism derives from Arius who is a bishop in Alexandria. Uh, he lived in about the 320s. His views w- became very popular and were actually one of the reasons why the church held the Council of Nicaea. So if you've ever read the Nicene Creed, if you grew up in a, a church that read the creeds, you, you're probably familiar at least with the Nicene Creed's existence. Um, it's a great, great creed. They wrote it, to shore up what the Bible's teaching is on this issue. Okay, and so we have to be careful not to say that the creeds are our authority because the creeds are not authority. The creeds were written, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, uh, these, these, and there's others, I'm just blanking on them now, but these creeds were written to defend true biblical Christianity in their day, in their time. And the reason that the Council of Nicaea was held, the reason that the Nicene Creed was written, was to condemn Arius. 
because he was leading the church away. And what did, what did Arius believe? Arius believed that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was not fully God. And neither was the Holy Spirit, but rather that Jesus was only a created being. That's a big problem, right? <laughs> to say that Jesus was not God is a big deal. That's not a little, in, that's not a matter of opinion. That's a, an absolute of the Christian faith. And so his denial, and he was stirring people up, or Arius was stirring people up to, to buy this, to believe this, and was basically saying that Jesus was just a, a, an angel who was sent down, created being, or in some forms of it, some forms of Arianism believe that uh, Jesus was man, fully man, and then at his baptism, God made him God. Um, weird stuff, wrong stuff. Um, so, so that had to be denied. And this is, where, this is part of the Council of Nicaea's creed. It says, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of things visible and invisible. And we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the begotten of God the Father, the only begotten that is of the essence of the Father, God of God, so that's who they're, they're talking about Jesus here, God of God, light of light, true God of true God. You think they're trying to emphasize something here? Um, they're, they're doubling down on this, and the good for them. And then they say this, this is the key phrase, begotten and not made of the very same nature of the Father, by whom all things came into being in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. We're going to talk a lot more about the deity of Christ, how we know that Jesus is God when, when we get to that lesson, but the Council of Nicaea was a vital thing. And I know that there's, there's historians now who, uh, or pseudo-historians that want to, want to portray this as, oh, you know, it was just Emperor Constantine who was trying to rally support, and they have all these weird theories about why the Council of Nicaea was held. And at the end of the day, the Council of Nicaea was held because Arius, the Bishop of Alexandria, was going nuts and preaching a false gospel, and they couldn't let that stand. And so they called a council of all the church leaders throughout the Western world and one of those leaders, this is interesting, historic, historically, uh, this guy named Nicholas showed up. Uh, he was a bishop. We know him as St. Nick, also Santa Claus, okay? Um, that's who the legend of Santa was kind of framed around, was St. Nicholas. Uh, but Nicholas was uh, a bishop who, who came to the Council of Nicaea, and I wish he was more famous for this than for being Santa, but um, he, he defended the deity of Christ. He was, he was staunchly in favor of uh, condemning Arius. And there's actually a legend that, I don't know if it's true, but they say that he got so angry during one of the meetings as Arius was speaking that he got out of his seat and punched Arius in the face. So you'll find this meme. He says, I came to give presents to kids and to punch heretics, and I just ran out of presents. 
I don't know. I just found that on the internet. I thought that was funny. Um, so I don't know if that's true or not, but that's, that's the legend. And so, uh, so you can see that's Greek for Nicholas right there. Um, so, okay. So that's, that's the second error. Arianism denies the full deity of, of Christ primarily, but you could say it denies the, the full deity of Christ and the Spirit in that category. Third error in denying one of these three statements is tritheism, which believes that there, is, there would be three separate gods. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, um, and that they're all separate. They're not unified in a trinity. And so, of course, this denies the statement that there is only one God. Um, I think that's pretty obviously wrong, right, biblically. I don't think we have to do a whole lot of defending on that, right? We go back to Deuteronomy, the Lord... Our God, the Lord, is one. There is one God. There is none like him. So we, the, the unity of God is really never much of a question. Um, but, but modalism does have, um, it does have some, some sway in some circles of so-called Christianity. Um, I don't know that you can be a true Christian and be a modalist, but um, I'll let God deal with that. That's not my, my deal. So... But I know that there is a denomination called Oneness Pentecostals. Um, they split back in the early 1900s with what is now the Assemblies of God. Um, the Assemblies of God denomination really wanted to, to double down on their Trinitarian theology. Praise the Lord. And there was a segment of that denomination that didn't want to believe that. They wanted to be modalists. So there was a split. Um, and they're still, you know, oneness Pentecostals are still a thing. They're still around. You'll think we have a couple churches in the area that would hold to that theology. And again, we'll let the Lord do his thing with that. So um, don't think there's anybody who's a Christian who says they're a tritheist. Um, and, but among the Arians, the, the modern day Arians would be Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, uh, even uh, Mormonism, you could probably make the claim um, that they are also uh, would fall under the Arian camp. Uh, this is why these are heresies. They're, they're not true churches. They're not true Christian churches. And I'm not here to slam on JWs or Mormons. They're, they're kind people, no, uh, no ill will, but they're, they're wrong on these things. So we can say, say that and have two thoughts in our head at the same time. We can love people and also say they're wrong because that's, that's true. Okay, so... So tritheism, I don't have any examples of anyone who would say they're a Christian and believe that. But um, all right, so let's talk about, we've talked about the essence of God's existence as a trinity, a triune God. But if they're all God, right? Jesus is God, the Spirit's God, the Father's God, they're all God, they're all, but they're not each other, right? Going back to that, that pyramid diagram we looked at. What are the distinctions between the, the persons of God? What is the Father, Son, and Spirit? How are they different from each other? What would, like, if they had no distinctions, why would they exist and why would they reveal themselves to us as a triune God if there's no purpose? And Wayne Grudem in his, in his systematic theology says that the only distinction between the members of the Trinity are in the ways that they relate to each other and to creation. So, so they have distinctions, they have differences, they play different roles within 
uh, the unity of God, they do different things. And I think we can see that. Um, We see that very clearly in Christ. Christ died on the cross. The Father didn't die on the cross. The Holy Spirit didn't die on the cross. Jesus died on the cross. Could we say that God died on the cross? Yes, we can, because that's true. Because Jesus is God. So yes, God died on the cross, but in the person of Jesus, in that, in that person within the Trinity. And so there's distinctions. The Holy Spirit indwells believers. Jesus says in John 14 that he's going to send the Spirit, or John 15, uh, he's going to send the Spirit to us, to be our comforter, to be our counselor, to guide us, to remind us of what he's done. So there's a, there is a distinction in that. Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to somehow morph into a spiritual essence and then live inside of you. Although, is it right to say that the spirit of Christ lives in us? Yeah, we can say that because it's true. He, the Holy Spirit is in the oneness of God, the spirit of Christ, the spirit of the Father, and The Holy Spirit stands on his own, but to say that the Holy Spirit dwells in us is is to emphasize the the distinction of that role. The Father begins all of these things. The Father sent the Son. And the Son and the Father sent the Spirit. And so there is distinctions here. They distinctly are different among each other within their unity and how they relate to, to us. Uh, and I'm going to just take a second here to read a, a little section of Calvin again for you. Um, just because I think he's, you know, it's old. He's old. He's dead now. But, uh, you know, he's a brilliant man, was a brilliant man, has some helpful things to say. And this, this section is, is from chapter uh, 8, or excuse me, 13, Roman numerals threw me off. Um, 13 of section 18. He says, I do not know whether it's expedient to borrow comparisons from human affairs to express the force of this distinction, this distinction between the Father, Son, and Spirit. So what he's saying is, is I, don't, I don't know that we need to use human analogies um, to try to figure this out. Men of old were indeed accustomed to do that sometimes. But at the same time, they confessed that the analogies they advanced were quite inadequate. So you've probably heard analogies of the Trinity. They're all terrible. Don't believe any of them, okay? Because they can't truly get to the, to the reality of it. Um, so God is like water. He can, for, he can exist as a liquid, a solid, or a gas. That's modalism, folks, because they don't exist in those three forms simultaneously. There's, it's different. Can it kind of help us understand a little bit? Meh, no, don't, don't do it. Okay, <laughs> just don't do it. It's, it's not helpful. Calvin, 500 years ago, was like, the old guys used to do that. I don't think we need to do that. So I don't know which old guys he's talking about because that's really, really old guys after, after all. But here's what he says. He says, nevertheless, it is not fitting to suppress the distinction that we observe to be expressed in Scripture. 
So we can't suppress the reality that the Father and Son and Spirit have distinctions. It is this. Here it is. Here's his definition. The Father, to the Father, is attributed the beginning of activity. He is the fountain and wellspring of all things. To the Son, wisdom, counsel, and the ordered disposition of all things. And I would also add the crucifixion, and I think he does, in future chapters here, he does talk about this. But, and then he says, to, to the Spirit, it is assigned the power and efficacy or effectiveness of that activity. Indeed, although the eternity of the Father is also the eternity of the Son and the eternity of the Spirit, since God could never exist apart from his wisdom and power, and we must not seek in eternity a before or an after, nevertheless, the observance of an order is not meaningless when the Father is thought of as first, then from him the Son, and finally from both the Spirit." For the mind of each human being is naturally inclined to contemplate God first, then the wisdom that comes from him, and lastly the power where he executes the decrees of his plan. For this reason, the Son is said to have come from the Father, the Spirit from the Father and the Son at the same time. This appears in many passages, but nowhere more clearly than in the 8th chapter of Romans. Okay, We're not going to talk about the 8th chapter of Romans today, but... That's, I think, somewhat helpful. Okay, uh, again, there, it's really, really hard to understand these things. But I think what we need to do is just simply go to the Bible. Um, I don't, he, Calvin would want us to go to Ephesians, uh, to Romans 8, but we're going to go to Ephesians 1. Um, so we're going to spend just a little time here. I'm not going to preach a whole long sermon on it, but I just want just to highlight that the Bible does teach this and, and it does show the distinctions between the persons. Okay, so verse three and following says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so we're talking about God the Father who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him, in Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself, to the Father as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So the father's role is to uh, give us every spiritual blessing to choose us before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless in Christ, to predestine us to be adopted into his family. This is why Calvin says that the father is the fountainhead of all things. He's the beginning of it. He starts it all. He kicks it all off. Verse 7, in him, now we're talking about uh, Jesus here, and we know that from the context. In him we have redemption through his blood. Whose blood? The Father's blood? No. 
Jesus' blood on the cross, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom. That's what Calvin was talking about, the wisdom of God in Christ and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, the Father's purpose. See, this is all kind of intertwined, so it's hard to wrap our heads around. Who's he, who's, which him is his and all that, right? But his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. So again, there, there's so much unity in this that Paul is just kind of interweaving all of these persons in the same conversation so that we have to like stay on our toes and go, wait, is he talking about Jesus here? Is he talking about the Father here? And at the end of the day, he's talking about all of them together, working together, but they have a different purpose. So uh, set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him. See, that's why it's so confusing because it's just all him, right? It's like, well, wait, which person are we talking about? Um, Purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, here's, here's the next thing, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So you see what Paul's doing here as he weaves together all of these issues. He's, He's saying that there's a unity in God where the Father begins this whole process of salvation. Jesus accomplishes salvation in the cross. And then the Spirit of God is our seal and promise and guarantee of that salvation that Jesus purchased for us through the cross that the Father ordained from before the foundation of the world. So we we have this trajectory of they each are present in here. They're each distinctly mentioned here, separately from each other, but also in union with each other. This is an amazing passage that as we kind of try to wrap our heads around it, we're seeing the the triune God working to save us in unity, but playing different roles in that process. So the Spirit's role in the process is to keep us, and he holds us in in Jesus. Jesus' role was to become man and to die on the cross and to shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. The Father's role was to bring about uh, all of the spiritual blessings. He's the fountainhead of all these things, and he sends the, spirit, the, the Son and the Spirit ultimately uh, to do this work for us. So, so that's, I mean, again, we could go to Romans 8. We could go other places to try to weave through this, but but I think that's the, Ephesians 1 will suffice for tonight because we're already at like an hour and a half into this thing. So um, I just figured we'll go from here and then I, I want to do some quick application. Uh, but any questions? Probably billions of questions, but let's, if you have anything that's burning, let just bring it up. We can try to talk through it. And if not, you can talk to me afterwards. Yeah. So not really a question. Okay. For your passage in Genesis one twenty six, yeah, Colossians one, starting at verse fifteen. I'm having a hard time. 
up with, he is the image of the invisible God pertaining to Christ. Mm -hmm. And then it continues going on explaining how Christ, Jesus, was with God in the creation. Yeah. So yep. there's another passage that helps solidify mm -hmm. what was written there in Genesis one twenty six. Yeah, that's right. That's good. Yeah, Colossians one fifteen to twenty. Um, John one also di directly connects Jesus to the created world um, as the one who created it all. Yeah. So lot. Thanks, Dwayne. That's that's helpful. Any any questions beyond that, and anything else I can help clarify? You can talk to me afterwards if you're too embarrassed to ask in front of people too. That's fine. All right. Well, let's let's um, finish. Yeah. I, I think the one thing on the yeah. Trinity that has been a little bit helpful to me is mm -hmm. there's been a lot of people, if you want to call it philosophy, that try to rationalize or be able to think these things through and put them all in order. And and there's just some things that we believe simply because he said it. Yeah. And that's part of the faith that he's given to us. That's right. No, that's I agree with you, hundred percent. Yeah, that's that's why it's called a, a faith. Um, there are things we're just not going to understand and wrap completely, be able to wrap our heads around. That's okay. That's okay because. Yeah, I mean, you talked about that at the beginning. Mm -hmm. It's some of the, I've always said that too. That a lot of it's just too much for us to understand. Yeah. Yep. It's good. Okay. Well, a couple a couple more things here, just. I want so this is called doctrine and devotion, uh, and the name is not irrelevant to what I want to do uh, because we want to talk about doctrine. But what I really want to help us do is at, at the end of each session, I want to talk about why it matters. One of the criticisms that I used to hear a lot from from friends of mine growing up is I went to Bible college and I started to dive into this stuff, and I'd come home really excited and be like, "Oh, you won't believe what I learned." And they'd tell me something like, oh, theology, it's just, it's not practical. It just doesn't really matter that much. And I think I tried to express at the beginning of this that it's very consequential, actually, because it's, it, it's how we know God, right? But the devotion part is that it should lead us to actually love him more because of what we've learned. So I think one, this is just one of a million points that we could make about this, but I think that knowing God the way he truly is, as he really is, is the foundation of our faith. Uh, that we, we can't come to God, we should never come to God, and try to create in him something of our own image. Right? That's why it's in the Ten Commandments, do not make for yourself graven images. A graven image is, is a human being's attempt to make God something that we can wrap our heads around and understand. And God pro explicitly prohibits his people from making a form of him to be worshipped. And, and there's great problems in that, is what happens is we become glory thieves. When we don't come to him as he really is, we try to seek the glory for ourselves that only he deserves. And so I want to take us just quickly to Psalm 115, I think this is one of the, the best summations of the problem with idolatry or the problem with coming to God 
making him into what we think he should be rather than into what he is. Um, Psalm 115, verse 1, I love it because it starts this way. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For your sake, excuse me, for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. The psalm begins with, not to us, Lord, we don't want it. It's your glory. You get the glory. We're not here to be glory thieves. And then it goes on to say this. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Which uh, we'll get into some of the conversations in future sessions about God's sovereignty but that's the definition of God's sovereignty. He's in the heavens and he does all he pleases. That's what it means for God to be sovereign. He does whatever he wants. He's truly the only being who can do whatever he wants because he's truly the only being who can only do what is good and right. So it's good that God can do all that he pleases. All right, verse four says, their, their idols, the idols of the nation, so these false gods are silver and gold, The work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. All right, we'll stop there for just a second. Let me, let me say what that's saying. They walk through the, the gods of the nations, these false gods, and just, they're just walking through how those gods aren't real. They're not alive. They're gods, our, our God's in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases, but their God is just made out of silver and gold. And they may look like they have human form, right? They have mouths, but they can't talk. They can't see. They can't feel. They can't walk. And then the key verse in this is verse 8, that those who make them become like them. There's a, there's a book, that, a theology book, that um, is on this issue of idolatry. And it talks about, I think the title of the book is, um, We Become What We Worship. We become like what we worship, I think, is actually the correct title. But um, the point in this passage is that those who make them become like them. And like them, meaning they don't feel, they don't see, they don't hear. He's not saying that they're going to lose their physical sight or physical ability to touch. He's saying that they, they'll become dead on the inside, just like these idols are dead on the outside. So they, so the warning is don't be, don't worship false gods because... You're not going to have life in you. And verse 9, he turns to Israel and he says, Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Oh, house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord both the small and the great. 
May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. Their gods were made by human hands. Our God made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens. But the earth he's given to the children of man. He's given us the earth. That's a great gift. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do they go down into the silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. So knowing God as he truly is, is the is the foundation of our faith, and it's the only real way we can have life in him. We have to come to him on his terms, and we have to come to him as he is. We need to be careful not to create a God in our own image. And so I'll, I'll close with this. I'm going to do a quick reading from the, um, this is the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a um, basically a, a doctrinal statement for the, Mostly Presbyterians use it, but um, it's, it's very good. And I think we'd agree on 99% of this book. But this statement about God is, I think, just, it just fills my heart with joy listening to it. So here's what it says. This is their summary of, of God as he is. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and in perfection a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working in all things according to the counsel of his own immutable, unchanging, and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgressions, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible is his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. God has all life, glory, goodness, blessedness and of him, in and of himself and is alone in and unto himself, all sufficient, not standing in need of any creature which he has made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the, uh, the only fountain of all being, of whom through and uh, through whom and to whom are all things, and has most sovereign dominion over them, to do by them for them or upon them whatever he pleases pleases. In his sight all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature. So as nothing is uh, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. He's the most holy in all his counsels and in all his works and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men and every other creature, whatever, whatsoever worship, service, and obedience he is pleased to require of them. The unity of the Godhead, there, uh, there be three persons of one substance, power and eternity. 
God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Father is neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. Let me, let me emphasize what that word begotten means because I kind of skipped past that. So begotten, not made, is, the, is what the Nicene Creed said. The Bible says that, that Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. Um, the word begotten is kind of a word that's fallen out of uh, understanding in, in some of our modern language. But it basically means to, to make of the same kind as you. So C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity has a whole chapter on, uh, on begetting, not making, and the difference between that. And, and what he talks about is that, um, like, he says that men and women make other men and women. Beget, excuse me, beget other men and women. We don't make. We make machines. We beget other people because we're people. Beavers beget beavers. They don't make beavers. They, be, they make dams. They don't make beavers. Right? And so when, when the Bible says that God the Son is begotten, not made, it means that he is of the same substance as the Father. He wasn't created by the Father. We're created by God. The, the Son is begotten of the Father, meaning that if God the Father has existed from all eternity... So is the Son. There is no beginning or end for the Son. That's why they emphasize so much in the Nicene Creed, begotten, not made, because Arius was, was teaching that there was, a the, there was a view that Jesus was made, not begotten, that he was created, that he was formed like an angel or something like that. So I, I kind of blew past that. I'm sorry, but I just wanted to, because I read it again, and I'm like, oh, yeah, begotten, that's that's a thing. So hope that clears that up. Maybe you weren't asking that question, but here we are. So um, Westminster Confession. There we go. Okay, so that's all I've got for today. If there's questions, we can engage. We've got a little time. Uh, otherwise, next week, we're going to go on to the attributes of God. So we've talked about God's nature and character uh, or, or nature and existence today, I should say. And... Uh, and so then next week, we're going to talk about, all right, God exists. He exists as a trinity. But, but what is his, like, central character? What does he actually do? Uh, and so we're going to unpack all of that. Um, yeah, so that'll be, that'll be it for tonight, unless you guys have questions.